We're continuing our studies in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Um, a little bit of a tricky passage. I'm not sure if that's some kind of weird elder's initiation. You pick, pick the hardest possible, bleakest chapter in the Bible and give it to the new guy to preach. Um, and I must admit that, follow, I mean, before we even get into 1 Samuel, following Mr. Welby's sermon from, from Monday morning, already feels like a tough enough assignment to, to follow him, probably one of the most watched pieces of television in, in British history. And he said some really, really good stuff, you know. Um, if I could sum it up in a nutshell, I think what stood out from it for me was his desire to get across the Queen's servant-hearted nature and the fact that it came from her faith in Jesus. He said, Her late Majesty's example was not set through her position or her ambition, but through whom she followed. And her allegiance to God was given before any person gave allegiance to her. And as we continue in 1 Samuel chapter 15 today, without wanting to put too much of a downer on proceedings, what we're going to see is pretty much the polar opposite of that. Um, We're going to see a king who was wildly ambitious and self-serving, and we're going to see how this attitude led to his eventual downfall. But I'm sure that most of us this week have thought more about the concept of a servant-hearted monarch than probably ever before in our lives. And I hope that almost by contrast that the journey we're going to take through this chapter is going to lead us to see the ultimate servant king for what he is. I know this has been said loads and loads of times, but I think it more and more every time I delve into the book of Samuel is that it would make the most amazing film or TV series. Um, you know, if you've been watching House of Dragon or Rings of Power, they've got nothing on this lot. Um, just for a second, you know, if you strip away the, the theological significance and its place in salvation history and all the rest of it, the pure narrative of these two books just plays out like the most bonkers melodrama you have ever read in your entire life. You know, just think of some of the highlights you've got over the course of these two books. You know, you've got the story of David and Goliath, story of David and Bathsheba, you know, David's mighty men, the battle at the Pool of Gibeon, one of my personal favorites. You know, Twelve of the best warriors from the two armies, they meet around this, this pool and they sit on either side and they, they look at each other and they stare each other out and then they duel to the death. You know, I'm pretty sure Ridley Scott could do something pretty cool with the, the Battle of Gibeon. And so we come to chapter 15, probably, possibly the most bonkers chapter of them all in this narrative. Tragic, but, but pretty wild. Uh, you know, I think Macbeth, Romeo and Juliet, Sophie's Choice all rolled into one. Um, it's gut-wrenching, it's confusing, it's gripping, it's devastating. Um, yeah, I'm not too proud to admit that I, I gave Ash a little, a little ring last week when I read this for the first time and said, yeah, are you sure you want me to give this a go? He said, yeah. It was quite a brief conversation. <laughs> so, you know, now I've really sold it to you. Let's, uh, let's crack on, shall we? Um, so, chapter 15, where have we landed? So, after a lot of back and forth and a lot of messing around, Saul is now king of Israel. Now, way back in Deuteronomy, chapter 17, verse 15, God permits his people, once they've settled in the promised land, to have a king. But on one very important condition, it was to be a king appointed by God himself. And although God does do this in chapter 9, right from the get-go, something about Saul's early reign just doesn't feel quite right. Now, if this was a film, there'd be like ominous 
violin music playing in the background. You know, reading these chapters gave me the kind of the same feeling as the one I had, you know, if you've seen the first few Star Wars films or the Hobbit trilogy, you know, where you witness the bad guy in the story before they turn bad. And you slowly see how it all goes wrong. You know, you see Anakin Skywalker before he becomes Darth Vader or Saruman the White before he turns evil and allies himself with Sauron. You know it's all going to go wrong and you pick up on these subtle little hints throughout the story of what's to come. Similarly here, we get these strange little hints of impending disaster when we read about Saul's early reign. Firstly, Samuel warns the people against fixating on a king in chapter 8. Then Samuel identifies Saul as king in chapter 10. And when he tries to find him to plonk the crown on his head, he runs off and hides in a pile of luggage. Story takes an unexpected swerve towards slapstick comedy just for a brief moment. Um, and just before this, when Samuel's making his announcement at the, the coronation, effectively, he basically tells the people that he's making a king despite himself, as the people's desire for a king is tantamount to rejection of God. It's the weirdest coronation ceremony you've ever seen in your life. If you, know, if you can imagine when we get King Charles's coronation, whenever that's going to be, you know, and just before it, if you can imagine, you know, Justin Welby or whoever it is goes to put the crown on his head. He turns around on live television with the world watching and denounces the king in front of everybody. That is essentially what you've got in this story. Well, things do go well initially. Uh, Saul, he wins battles, he prophesies, he shows mercy to his defeated enemies. But it never ever feels quite right, particularly for Samuel. And by the time we get to chapter 15, we see Saul after he's gone. He's gone full bad guy. You know, the veneer has been stripped. He's got on his black cloak and his Darth Vader mask, if you like. Subheading in my Bible reads, the Lord rejects Saul. His chance has come and gone and we're going to see him for what he is. So let's dive back in and uh, look at this chapter in a bit more detail. Um, I've called my first point the elephant in the room. Uh, might be something of an understatement. I think it's more like somebody murdered the elephant in the room, to be honest. Um, so this story is going to unfold against the backdrop of a military campaign by Israel against the people known as the Amalekites. And I would hazard a guess that a good few of you were so horrified after reading verse 3 that you probably didn't pay much attention to anything else that God read. So I think it's probably prudent to tackle verse 3 before we go any further. Otherwise, you'll all be sitting there thinking, you know, when's he going to get to the verse about killing children? So humbly, fearfully, I want us to spend just a couple of minutes thinking about this verse. I've got kids of my own. You know, I know the reaction that this is likely to incite in some of you. It, I would hazard a guess it's the same reaction that I've had myself at some point. You know, if you want to grab me afterwards, vent at me, you know, give me a piece of your mind, I will understand you know, I was sat right in this, this very bit of the talk and, you know, Kip, my little boy, is sitting next to me. He's giggling, he's rattling the keyboard, he's making a nuisance of himself, loving his life. You know, the irony was not lost on me. But let's just try and navigate through it together for a couple of minutes. Verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them, put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So the first thing to mention is that 
the, the Amalekites were something of a mortal enemy to the people of Israel. You know, think England and France in the Middle Ages, if you're that way inclined. You know, they were at war over generations. It was a deeply ingrained conflict. You can go back as far as Deuteronomy. Further forward in Samuel, and the, the Amalekites were continually ha- harassing the people of Israel, attacking them when they were weak, setting themselves up in opposition to God until finally God has had enough. And as he puts it, he wants to blot them out from the face of the earth. Now, I am well aware that verses like this are fodder for the likes of Stephen Fry and Richard Dawkins and Ricky Gervais and all these guys. You know, they point to verses like this as evidence of a morally reprehensible God. You know, I'm sure most of you have heard Dawkins' famous quote from the God delusion. It says, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, Philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Strong words. Now, I could sit and I could try and pick that apart and I could try and whittle down this verse and try and dilute it and make it fit with our 21st century ideas of morality. But I don't think that's particularly helpful whether, you, whether you're Christian or otherwise. One thing did make me curious when I read that quote. Dawkins describes the God of the Old Testament as fictional in the first sentence, but then points to perceived flaws in his character as evidence of his fictitiousness. Now, to me, that seems illogical. I do not like this God, therefore I will denounce him as fabricated. I don't like lots of things, but it doesn't mean that I can deny their existence. It's the wrong way around, isn't it? First decide whether or not you think this God is fictional. And then you can move on to what you make of his character. Because if you truly believe in your heart that the God of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament, belongs on the same shelf as Zeus and Thor and Ra and all these guys, then we can sack this conversation right here and now and we can just deal with that. It makes no sense to become so impassioned by something that you believe to be false. It makes me think there's something more going on under the surface there with these guys. So for those of us here who call ourselves Christian, or at the very least theistic, but we've read verse 3 and we're horrified and we're confused by it, the same question applies. Is this God who he says he is? Did this happen or didn't it? Because if it did, it is a terrible folly to take this God on anything other than his own terms. We have to deal with the God that is, not the God that we want. Now, that's very matter-of-fact. That's a slightly cold answer, granted. You know, we preach week after week about the love of God. You know, we quote often that he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We believe that the same God who in Matthew says, let the little children come to me, do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. It's the same God who here says, I want you to go and slaughter every Amalekite child you can find. It's a glaring contradiction, is it not? But only if you neglect to apply context. Now, context is a very, very important word here. You know, all of us at some point have fallen into this trap where we consider ourselves as 21st century people enlightened. You know, we sit from atop our perch of enlightenment and we look down at verses like this and we brand them as barbaric and incomprehensible. And they are. There's no getting around it. 
But one thing it isn't, for the time, is unusual. Now, a contemporary of Israel at this time would have viewed this text through a completely different lens to the one that we're looking at it through. Now, they would probably branded it as incomprehensible for a totally different reason. You know, to not take advantage of the situation and thoroughly humiliate your enemy by stealing his livestock or public, publicly humiliating his king, that would have been the incomprehensible part to them. You know, our cultural, political, societal, moral values are so far removed from this time that it can only horrify us. But this narrative sits amid a timeline of salvation history which spans generations and at times speaks specifically to those different generations. And it's our job to step back and draw out the grand narrative from the text that speaks to all of us rather than get hung up on one specific part. You know, the best way I could think to sum it up was it's a bit like archaeology. You, know, you might be doing a dig, an archaeological dig, and you might discover you know, the small bone of an animal or something. And you might think that it represents something. But then you continue to brush away and the fossil gets bigger and bigger and bigger until eventually your perception, once you see the full picture, is totally different from how you viewed it at first. I know it doesn't seem like it at the moment, but we are journeying towards a message of hope and restoration, which will eventually be uncovered and reveal itself in its full glory. So what did, what did the Amalekites do to, to garner this reaction from God? Probably a number of things. They were, they were a bloodthirsty people. They inflicted centuries worth of horror and bloodshed on men, women, and children alike. But I think the most simple explanation comes in Deuteronomy 25, verse 18, when God is describing an incident where they attacked the Israelites as they came out of slavery centuries before. And he quite simply says, they did not fear God. They saw everything that God had done for his people they must have heard about the crossing of the Red Sea and the plagues and all the rest of it. And despite this, they showed utter contempt towards God. They believed his power to be negligible and they considered their own might as superior. Common way of thinking at the time, you know, my God displays his power through military might. So if we beat you, my God's better than your God. I said earlier, it's the worst kind of folly to take this God for anything other than what he is. And this is what the Amalekites found out to their ultimate cost. True to his word, God was slow to anger. He waited centuries, centuries which were no doubt filled with more attacks and more bloodshed until God said no more. I'm not saying that to set ourselves up against God is to disregard, or to disregard him will automatically turn us into bloodthirsty monsters, but it will incur a reaction eventually. God stayed his hand from destroying the Amalekites for centuries. He is merciful towards also. But to set ourselves up in persistent rebellion against him will incur his anger eventually. But, point number two, there is a certain irony going on here that can't be lost on us. Now, God dispenses justice against the Amalekites because they set themselves up as his enemies and refuse to fear him. But through this ordeal, a complacency every bit as damning is going to be revealed in Saul. Verse 7, then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything 
that was despised and weak. They totally destroyed. And the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all night. So Saul, in a, in a weird way, shows mercy here. You know, he spares the Kenites in verse 6. And as I've touched on already, instead of killing everything that he can see, he saves some animals and he takes the king alive. You know, big deal, you might think. You know, weighed against the slaughter that's been committed, sparing a few sheep and a king might have been considered something of a kindness. But then we get to verse 12. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. Now we're getting down to it. This is the point where the true antagonist in Saul is revealed for me. He sets up a monument in his own honor. I love the way that my ESV study notes describe this verse. It says, the fact that Saul has set up a monument for himself raises further suspicions about his character. Has it really? (laughs) The man builds a giant statue of himself. Suspicious maybe isn't the word that I would use. Um, I don't think the people looked at the monument and thought, God, that's a bit suspicious, isn't it? Megalomaniac, maybe a more fitting word to use. Um, But here's the thing, Saul won't have been the first ancient monarch to set up a monument for himself after his victory. No, he certainly wasn't the last. And that's exactly the problem. It's a problem that's persisted all the way through the book of Samuel. We've touched on it already. No doubt we'll come to it again before we're done, but I guess you know if we keep repeating it, maybe it'll sink in. They wanted to be like everybody else. All the surrounding nations, taking the best animals, taking the king alive so you can publicly humiliate him, building a statue to yourself. That's what everybody else did. And God said right from the outset, I want you to be different. I want to set you apart from these other countries because if you persist in trying to be like them, you'll end up like the Amalekites. So I was a glorified instrument in the hands of God. And this was about God's purpose in ending an evil civilization that persisted for centuries. This wasn't supposed to be an opportunity for economic expansion. It wasn't supposed to be an excuse to brag. This is one of the most fearful judgments God executes in the Bible. No doubt he wants the occasion to be marked with a bit of solemnity. Saul turns it into a party. He turns it into a victory parade. And he makes it about himself and his own ego. Saul would no doubt have known what happened the last time Israel fought. Amalek in Exodus 17. Israel only won the battle because two fellas had to hold Moses' arms in the air. And the second his arms dropped, they started losing. And yet he's still reveling in his own victory. Like this is something that he's achieved on his own. Samuel's furious. You know, the exchange they have is almost laughable. You know, Saul walks up to him thinking he's about to get a pat on the back. You know, maybe he's thinking, ah, God will be all right with me. You know, I'll sacrifice some of this livestock I've nicked. And it'll be sweet, it'll be fine. You know, main thing is we won, right? Verse 22, you just you should have obeyed and done what you were told. Samuel says to him, obedience is better than sacrifice. Verse 26, you've rejected the word of the Lord. So the Lord has rejected you from being king. Possibly the worst thing he could have heard. You know, King Agag then comes strolling into the into the frame about as welcome as an arrow through the neck with a gas bill tied to it. Um, he's cracking jokes. He's thinking, I think in my ESV translation, he says he walked up cheerfully. You know, he's thinking he's got away with one. You know, I don't need to spell out to you how it ends for him, but it's not pretty. 
and perhaps most tragically of all, as Samuel's walking away, Saul is overcome by remorse. He grabs hold of Samuel's cloak and rips it. Samuel uses this as a metaphor to how God has torn the kingdom away from him. Saul claims to be remorseful here because he sinned against God, but I think it's entirely possible he's, he's just wounded because he's not going to be king anymore. You know, you know when you catch your, your child do, doing something wrong and you tell them off and they start crying and you think, you're not upset because you've done something wrong, you're upset because you've got caught and there's consequences. You know, I think similar to what's going on here. You know, the whole situation is just an utter, complete mess. From start to finish due to one man's desire for personal glory and the people's desire for acceptance among the nations. So I think the question for us is quite straightforward, quite blunt, as much of this passage is. Are we going to be different? No, this is one of many cautionary tales in the Bible about the dangers of pursuing autonomy over God's purposes, about the dangers of going along with the crowd. I think Jesus sums it up in the best way I can think of in Matthew 7. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. And Saul, along with the Amalekites, has just coasted down the broad road and ended up without a kingdom. Now, the supremacy of mankind is woven into the fabric of just about every aspect of society that we live in today. You know, the need to be accepted, the need to be admired, the idea that material things add value to who we are. I'm going to kind of show my age a little bit here, but there's, there's this phrase that I keep hearing that the kids keep using. Flex. That's a flex. Like if someone walks past with a nice handbag, you know, that's a flex in it. I don't quite understand that. I mean, flexing's a verb. I think you can't just change aspects of the English language, but yeah, that's just me. But, you know, I'll tell you something. Saul coming back from a battle dragging a defeated king and the best-looking livestock with him about, is about the biggest flex that you could flex at this particular time. You know, but this was his undoing. It wasn't necessarily about sheep and goats, you know, just like us. You know, I'm not saying you can't look nice or try and improve yourself. You know, it's about letting your desire to appear valuable in the eyes of the world define your identity. Saul built a statue to himself. Evidently, this is his identity now. He's king of Israel. He wants everybody to know about it. You know, for us, it's about when the brand of you becomes more important than the purposes of God. It's a slippery slope. It's not something that's immediately self-evident, but it's definitely something to guard against. God says, be different. Don't follow personal glory and acceptance. Follow me and live. So lastly, if I was to leave it there, that would seem like quite a depressing place to leave things. But as I've said before, there is hope woven into this text. And it comes in a place that you might not immediately expect. Verse 28, Samuel said to Saul, The Lord has torn the kingdom from Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. To one later revealed in chapter 16 as King David. This is the beginning of the line that's going to lead us to Jesus. Out of the ashes of this tragedy, a phoenix is going to rise and give hope. Now, no doubt Saul took this reference to one better than him as something of a personal insult. You know, we've already established that he thought quite a lot of himself. But from the line of kings who will replace him will come one 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You know, this, this call from God to be obedient and humble, it's not so, so much as a command we are to follow, so much as an example. Saul failed in his responsibility to be humble before God and obedient. But we follow one who obeyed perfectly, who obeyed his father to the fullest, even when it cost him his life, and humbled himself in taking the nature of a poor, homeless, despised human being. See, we are horrified by what God ordered against the Amalekite children in this text. But what God permits Jesus to endure on the cross is so much worse. He doesn't order the destruction of somebody else's child. He pours the full weight of his anger more than anything the Amalekites ever experienced onto his own child. God is in no way distant from human grief. The separation from his son he experiences more than we will ever know. On the face of it, this was the most barbaric act ever committed. More horrifying than anything that we can conceive, but without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission for sin. By his wounds we are healed. Paradoxically, this act alone can bring us peace and restoration with God. So we can't presume to understand things the way he does. Suffice it to say that we know that his love for us was his motivation in undergoing this ordeal. Jesus went willingly to his demise. Jesus' humility and obedience gives us far more than just an example to follow. It is the very means through which we can approach God and have life. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is the only thing that can divert us away from the broad road. So whether we've spent our lives like Saul, consumed with our own affairs and how we're perceived, We've been disobedient. Jesus' obedience and sacrifice can bring us back. At the end of this chapter, we see Samuel mourning for Saul. And after everything that we've been through, after everything that they've been through together, this is the last time that they see each other. Saul is effectively dead to Samuel and cut off from God's favor. Left to ourselves, this is our natural state. We have one that can bring us back. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us.